some of the most famous words of Jesus in the book of Revelation and possibly in the, the whole of the New Testament are contained in this message to the church at Laodicea. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those are some lovely words. Those are words that have brought many people even to faith in Christ. Knock. And the door should be opened, Jesus tells us. But we ought also to open the door without knocking so that he can come in. When we trust, when we pray, we ask the Lord to bless us, to answer prayers. But there's also a place in our lives where we need to actually open the door in our hearts and let the Lord in. It's down to us to do what needs to be done, not down to God to answer the prayer. It's down to us to turn back to the Lord, to open that door in our hearts and to let him in. We ought to open the door to Jesus, open the door in our hearts to him. And for many people who are backslidden, that means turning back to the Lord, not shutting him out. For some people who have not believed in him yet, that means coming to faith, putting Jesus in the rightful place, in their lives, trusting that he's died on the cross so that they can be reconciled to the Father. There'd be no barrier anymore. The barrier of sin which distances us from God. And Jesus has dealt with that. We need to trust in the cross so that, well, he can come in and be with us now. But we need to open the door. We need to turn to him. We need to turn from our sin. We need to repent and turn to him. Although these words are primarily written to those who are already believers, this same call is a call which many people have welcomed. One which has brought them to actual faith in Christ. Some of the other well-known words of Jesus are also to this church. They're sad words, they're shocking words in a sense. He says, I know all the things you do, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you're like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What a thing for Jesus to say about a church, about Christians. Those are words which we hope he will never say about us. But yet if he does, if we end up in that situation, he has comforting words. He has encouraging words. Nevertheless, these are not words of judgment where there is no hope. These are words of diagnosis so that people will take the remedy that he offers as well. This passage is often used to address the problem of lukewarm Christians. There are, there are many Christians who are lukewarm. <clears throat> and this, this passage is used very, very often to try and address the whole problem of, of Christians who have lost their fervor for the Lord. 
they're neither hot nor cold, they're, they just look warm, they're half-hearted. There's an illustration used in our daily bread, the daily devotional. Um, if I adapt it so it's less American and more up-to-date, a pastor wrote, Recently I talked to a man who will call Mr. Lukewarm, for he's neither cold nor hot. You get the pun Luke. It's the first name. Luke Warm. For he's neither cold nor hot. He says he's a Christian, but he seldom attends church. I'm under a great deal of stress where I work, he explains. And I often just have to lie in and relax on Sundays. Sure, that's what Sundays are for, isn't it? He says. Church is all right, but a person can't do everything, you know. But he also had an uneasy conscience about his giving to the Lord's work. And he continued, Sure, I do give a pound or two in the offering box whenever I go. And I think that's all God can expect of me. If I give as much of my income as other Christians do, sure, I could be out over a thousand or two a year. And you don't know how expensive it is for, for me to maintain all my media subscriptions to... But I'm down at the pub to pay all the rounds, just like all my friends do. And to get a couple of holidays a year, just to just to relax, to de-stress. Anyway, churches put too much emphasis on attendance, of being there each week, and on giving money to the Lord's work. Sometimes I just get so fed up with Christians and all their demands on me that I feel like quitting altogether, he says. As a caricature, but I think it gets a point across. Sometimes we know Christians ourselves who are like that. They're half-hearted. They are not on fire for the Lord. They're so cold towards the Lord. You begin to wonder, are they even Christians at all? And then there are some Christians who are, well... They're believers and they they want to do the Lord's work. They want to love the Lord. But their version of what being a Christian is, is very me-centered. It's very them-centered. They reluctantly go to church on occasions because they feel that that's what they ought to do. But they're focusing on their enjoyment of the experience more than worshipping the Lord. They're genuine they want to do good and they want to help others. Yet, in their world, their agenda comes first. God is there to help them. They don't want to, to serve God the way he wants them to live. They decide what's right and then they expect God to help. Years ago, people believed that the sun went around the earth the earth was at the centre of the solar system and the sun went around the earth and all the planets were doing their thing as well. But scientists realised that told on, the sun is the centre of the solar system and all the planets make an orderly orbit around the sun. And yet for so many Christians it's almost as if God revolves around me. The Son of God should revolve around me instead of me orientating my life to revolve around the Son of God. 
they think highly of attending church, taking part in fellowship groups, but actually they rarely do so. Something important always seems to come up and they can't let others down. Anything that comes up almost seems to be too important. And they don't spend much time in their devotions each day, reading God's word, praying to him. There's always something more important to do. Should they put on maybe a a worship song in the car on the way somewhere? Sure, in the background. That, that, that does the same job, doesn't it? We could go on, we could say more. They don't have time to read God's word, to hear what he's saying to them. Don't have time to pray to him. They're well-intentioned, but lukewarm. Instead, the Lord says, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our lives ought to be God-centered. And loving God first above everything else and everyone else. Loving him also means we love our neighbor. Not for our neighbor's sake primarily, but for God's sake, out of love for him. And yet, there are other Christians who are simply just half-hearted. They can't be bothered. They don't have good intentions. They've lost virtually all their enthusiasm for their personal devotions. They go to church maybe each week. They might be in the habit of doing that. But they might be last to arrive and they're first to go. Get out while the last song, the last chorus has been sung on the last hymn in in case somebody nabs you on the way out and has a conversation with you and wants to chat and have fellowship. There's a dinner to put on, there's something to do, the DIY or whatever needs done. Or They claim to be believers, but they don't live like believers. And as a result, not only are their lives affected, not only is their Christian walk compromised, but they are not salt and light in the world. So much so that you wonder, has the salt lost its saltiness altogether? While attending a university in London, Mahatma Gandhi became almost convinced that the Christian religion was the one true supernatural religion in the world. Gandhi was a famous world leader, and yet he almost became a Christian while he was studying in England. Upon graduation and still seeking evidence that would make him a committed Christian, young Gandhi accepted employment in East Africa and for seven months lived in the home of a family who were members of an evangelical Christian church. As soon as he discovered that fact, he decided that here would be the place to find the evidence he sought. But as the months passed and he saw the casualness of their attitude towards the cause of God, He heard them complain when they were called upon to make sacrifice for the kingdom of God and sensed their general religious apathy. Gandhi's interest turned to disappointment. He said in his heart, No, this is not the one true supernatural religion I had hoped to find. A good religion, but just one more of the many religions in the world. 
lukewarm Christianity is like salt that has lost its saltiness. It's like a light that has virtually gone out or has gone out. It not only affects our relationship with the Lord, but the church's witness in the world. But Paul tells us, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal, be zealous for the Lord. Keep your spiritual fervor. Be on fire for the Lord, serve him. And yet, when Jesus says to the church in Laodicea that they are lukewarm and that he would spit them out of his mouth, as much as these things about lukewarm Christians are true, and as much as this is often how this Bible passage is interpreted, this isn't actually what Jesus is trying to get at. He's not saying that because the water is lukewarm, that that corresponds to the Christians being lukewarm towards himself. Actually, it's worse than that. He says that they're, they're not what they ought to be. They're useless. It's not as though they're half useful. They are actually useless. As this letter which is taken to Laodicea, they're the last of the, the seven churches in Revelation, we see that Jesus is writing to the deluded Christian. Not simply the, the half-useful, half-hearted, lukewarm Christian, but the Christian who has lost their usefulness. He's describing those who are like Pharisees, who believed they were the bees knees, they believed that they were the the pinnacle of what God's people ought to be. But instead they were far from it. There were people who believed, like the Apostle Paul, before his Damascus Road experience, that he was doing the Lord's work, that he was... Well, to describe Paul's experience in his own words in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old, I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, 
Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. These believers at Laodicea, well, some of them were believers, certainly. But there may have even been unbelievers in the church there. But these people were living, whether they were actually unbelievers or not, they were living as unbelievers. They were trusting in their own strength. They had confidence in themselves, like Paul had before his Damascus Road experience, as he was describing himself in that situation there in Philippians 3. Trusting in himself. They were trusting in themselves. Their confidence was in themselves rather than in Christ. And Jesus uses four illustrations here to this church to try and get them to see that their confidence is in themselves and not in him and that their confidence is unfounded. That they have squeezed him out. They aren't what they believe they are. They think they're great, but they're not. Firstly, he says that they are neither hot nor cold. I know all the things that you do, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you're like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Notice here that he he doesn't say that you're half hot or half cold, but neither hot nor cold. He's not saying that He's not using the, the, the illustration that hot means on fire for the Lord and you're halfway there. He's not saying that at all. The cold water is good. It's not as though cold was bad and hot was good. Cold water is good. If you need a refreshing drink, cold water is lovely. And hot water is great too if you want a hot bath or if you want a hot cup of tea or something. But lukewarm water... It's useless. On a hot day, if you're trying to drink lukewarm water, you just don't want it. You'd rather just pour it down the sink. Lukewarm water needed either to be cooled so that it became cold or heated up so that it became hot. It wasn't useful as it was. And the people at Laodicea knew firsthand how awful lukewarm water was. Laodicea was a city which was in an area of very hard water. We have hard water and soft water, depending on where you live. But Laodicea was not just in a hard water area. They had had lime in the water. And it was horrible to drink. The water that came down from the mountains just by the city, the natural water that would, could be used. And, and worse than that, it had, it had deposits in it, lime deposits. It was cloudy. It, was, it wasn't drinkable. So instead, what, what they had to do, instead of getting the good local cool, cold water, they had, to, they had to pipe water in. They had to use an aqueduct to get drinkable water from a long way away but the problem was as the water came down that aqueduct it may have been cold when it came out of the the spring or out of the the stream from the mountain 
But as I was traveling down through that aqueduct in the heat of the day, it became lukewarm by the time it arrived at Laodicea. They also knew what hot water was like. There was a town not so far away, Hierapolis, where there were hot springs. And the town was famous for it. It was a real blessing to people. Archaeological evidence proves that there was thick lime deposits in the terracotta pipes that were used for the local water supply from the local area in Laodicea, which didn't work, was rejected. They brought in other water from elsewhere, but it became lukewarm and they hated it. They either had to cool it down or heat it up. It was useless, undrinkable. Being lukewarm didn't mean being half good. It meant being no good at all because it was neither hot nor cold. And he continues, he says they're neither rich, they're not rich, but they're poor. Just like the Pharisees believed that, that they were the, the best people they stood on the street corners to get the attention for their piousness. So the church in Laodicea seems to have trusted in itself and thought that it was doing well. Everything was great. Look at us. And yet, although they thought they were a rich people, Jesus says, You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Jesus says that they believed they were rich. They, they believed they have everything they want. They don't need anything. They were self-sufficient. They didn't even need Jesus. Laodicea was a rich city. It was a wealthy banking center. It hosted gladiatorial games uh, like local versions of the Olympic Games. This was a city who could put on a big show. It had a theatre. It had a great reputation. It was the head over 25 towns in a civic forum. And it was rich. So much so that in AD 60, when there had been an earthquake, and the Roman Empire would send wanted to send funds to the, the towns that were affected to help them get re-established relief aid as we call it today. Well, who would say no to that? Free money. Well, the Laodiceans said no. So we're rich enough. We don't need... That would have been an insult to them. Their pride wouldn't allow them to take the, the funds, the relief funds from Rome. They believed they were rich enough. They could do it themselves. And yet Jesus says that they're poor they're wretched, miserable, and poor. You don't realize, but that's what you are. And he continues. He says they're blind. Laodicea was also known for its medical school. Amongst the things that they had done there, they had a famous eye doctor who practiced there. He was based in Laodicea. And there was a famous ointment, an eye salve, an eye ointment made from Phrygian powder 
they were famous for having good eyesight, for helping people who had bad eyes, bad eyesight. And yet Jesus calls them blind. They're the opposite of what they believed themselves to be. And he calls them naked. The city was well known for its wool, its black wool. And some commentators note that Jesus offers white clothes in contrast to the black wool that they were used to, that they were proud of. They were proud of their own clothing, and yet Jesus says, no, you need something very different. And they trusted in themselves. The point is that they were not half right and half wrong. They were completely wrong. They were trusting in themselves and not trusting in Jesus. They had pushed Jesus out and they were not in fellowship with him. He was outside the door. And yet there are churches today who believe in this, that they're all right, self-sufficient. Just like the Pharisees, just like the Laodiceans, self-confident. But they've squeezed Jesus out. They've squeezed the Holy Spirit out. Some churches trust in their doctrines, their faithfulness to the truth. Uh, and yet sometimes their self-confidence brings on an attitude of self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. Other churches trust in past revivals. God worked powerfully in their churches in the past and their confidence is in, well, we're the same people. Look how God used us in the past. And they don't realize the past glory isn't transferable to the present. We need God's fresh blessing new every day. We ought to pray daily to the Lord for his blessing, not trust on past glory. And sometimes the past glory was a couple of hundred years ago. But even if it was only a couple of decades ago or even a few years ago, we mustn't trust in anything else other than Jesus himself. In fact, every church's strength can become its weakness. The thing that the Lord blesses it in when, when they trusted in him, if they start to trust in their blessing and their strength and not in the Lord, that strength can become their weakness. And so too in our own lives. The Lord may have used some of us, some of you, in great ways. But yet the temptation is to think, wow, look at that. And you put your pride and your confidence in who you are, what you've done. And you're no longer putting your confidence in the Lord. Our greatest strength can become our greatest weakness. The church in Laodicea, there was nothing wrong with being rich as long as they were not trusting in their riches. Whatever it is, let's look and see, are we trusting in ourselves or our strengths rather than the Lord who gives us our strength? Into this situation having diagnosed the church as being really useless. 
self-confident in themselves and they haven't got the strength they think they have. Jesus then lovingly calls to them to be blessed through fellowship with him, to renew their fellowship with him and to be blessed in him, to take their confidence off of themselves, to realize that they are blind, wretched, poor, naked, and to find their blessing and their covering in him. He says, So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. There's a real sense in which the the, the illustration of gold purified by fire. Uh, on the judgment day, Paul talks about our works being refined by fire and the gold and the precious metals will survive and the, the hay, wood and stubble will be just burnt up. That's it seems to be an illustration of separating works done in the spirit, works done in the strength of the Lord from works done in the, the natural strength of a sinful nature, the flesh. And taking that parallel here, he says, I advise you to buy gold for me, gold that has been purified by fire, to trust in me, to walk in the Spirit, to find your strength in me. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments for me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. And the Bible repeatedly, wearing white garments is a symbol of wearing the righteousness of Christ whereas wearing stained garments is a a way of symbolizing being sinful and still having our sin to our account and ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see And yet the love of the Lord comes out here. He says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. The Lord doesn't simply want to come down and point the finger and and make us feel bad. The devil will do that. Whenever you're feeling convicted and there's no hope, that's of the devil. But whenever you're convicted and you're motivated and you're drawn towards turning to the Lord, that's of the Spirit. It's out of love for us. It's out of drawing us back into a relationship with Christ that he speaks to us. He draws his people back to himself like a shepherd who takes his wandering sheep and he brings them back into the fold. That's what Jesus is doing here. He does that to the church and he also does it to us as individuals. So he says, be diligent and turn from your indifference. That's the root cause of the problem here. They weren't half-hearted. They were completely indifferent to the Lord. They weren't lukewarm. They weren't trusting in him and depending on him at all. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Jesus is knocking on the door of this church. He's knocking on the door of the lives of these individuals. And he's waiting for a response. Our relationship with the Lord 
is not simply something that he does to us and we have no control in. We have no power, we have no role in, sorry, I should say. We know God is sovereign, but we are included in the process of coming to faith and being sanctified. We're told that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have to call on his name. And we have to walk with him. We have to trust in him. We have to depend upon him. And Jesus is saying here, call on me. Open the door. Let me in. In his sovereignty, we know that his people will open the door and that he will have motivated them to do so. But in our experience, from our perspective, if we don't open the door to Jesus into our lives and trust in him for salvation, if we don't walk as those who are believers, well, how can we, if we don't have works, how can we know that our faith has been genuine, James tells us. He calls them to become rich in him, to have white garments from him instead of the black garments our city is famous for, to be clothed in righteousness, not of their own, but from him. Not to be spiritually naked, but to have a covering for their sin. Not to have their blindness go on, but to have it treated that they may be able to see. Not to be indifferent to the Lord, but to be diligent and to obey him. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. We will have fellowship together. Sometimes when we go our way, we don't notice that Jesus has left the building, that Jesus has sort of become on the periphery of our lives. We think everything's going well because it's going our way. And then when it doesn't go well, we wonder, Lord, what are you doing here? The problem is that we hadn't been going his way. We hadn't been, hadn't been seeking his will, putting him first. We hadn't been close to him. If we're distanced from the Lord... If we're indifferent to him, let's open the door and let him back in. How do we open that door? Well, firstly, we turn back to him. We admit that we have done wrong. We admit that we have squeezed him out. And we listen to him. We read his word. Oh, it's such a tragedy that people who say that they love the Lord and yet have no time to listen to him. They pray to God and wonder why he doesn't speak to them, but they're not listening to him. We need to spend time with him, read his word and pray in response. Then we will have fellowship with him. Jeremiah tells us, If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. The Israelites who are in exile, if they seek him, he will bless them. And they will return to the land where his presence will be with them. 
And that promise, that principle still applies to us today. There was a guy called Greg Morse who described what his was like his life was like. He was trusting in himself. He even described himself as a lukewarm Christian, but really he wasn't a Christian at all. He thought, he says, I thought I was a Christian for years. I swore I had a relationship with God. I believed I could die at any moment and be welcomed into heaven. I wasn't a Christian. I didn't have a relationship with God and I wouldn't be welcomed into heaven. He writes, I did not have a category for somebody who thought they was a follower of Christ, but they weren't. I assumed that if I had any desire to be a Christian, God should welcome me with shouts of joy. I had never read that there would be people on Judgment Day who would emphatically greet, greet Jesus, calling him Lord, Lord, and yet be rejected by him, as Jesus tells us in Matthew seven twenty one. No one ever told me that people could do a lot of mighty works for God and yet still be lost. I convinced myself that I was safe from the wrath of God. No one told me that the lukewarm Christian gets spit out of God's mouth. No one informed me that if if God was not first in my heart, I was either in urgent need of repentance or I was lost. I was lukewarm and loving it, to quote Francis Chan, he said. I didn't curse much. I wasn't sleeping around. I went to church most Sundays. I must be a Christian, he thought. I said that Jesus died for my sins. I sang the lyrics on the screen. I must be a Christian, he thought. Sure, God wasn't my all in all. Sure, I never read his word. Sure, I never prayed very much. I secretly loved sin, he said. I rarely admitted that I was a Christian in public. Sure, I was only human after all. No one's perfect, he says. I kept convincing, kept myself in my delusion, muting my conscience and convincing myself that I was right with God by this simple strategy. I refused to read God's book and I measured myself instead by the people around me. He compared himself with people who were worse and thought he was better than them, thought he was good enough. And he thought about Christians who were Fervent for the Lord, he thought, hold on, they must be the the all-stars. They're the the super-Christians. I don't have to be like that. He convinced himself that he was fine the way he was. His Bible was collecting dust in his room, unopened. Then he says, God led me to his word. I opened it, and it saved me. There I read that while we were worse than lukewarm, while we were indifferent, the King of Kings died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. Although my sin and apathy deserved eternal punishment, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23 He notes that, as Jesus said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Just like Jesus is talking to those in Laodicea who are not as healthy as they think they are. He realized that he was an unbeliever who was used to going to church. 
And so he turned to God, confessed his sin, put God first in his life, first place in his life. He became a new person in Christ Jesus and he never looked back. These words in Revelation chapter 3 are written primarily to believers, but they also apply by extension to unbelievers. God's call for us to turn to him, to depend upon him, that's what each of us ought to do. If we haven't trusted in him before, if we've been confident in ourselves or anyone else or what anybody else does for us, then we've not been trusting in Jesus. He called us to call upon the Lord and we will be saved. To trust in him, confess him, trust in him. If we are believers and yet we have backslidden, he calls us to get back with him. Let him back in. Spend time with him. Put him first. But there will always be something that takes priority if we let it. Let's let Jesus take priority over everything else. If the door is already open a bit, if you're already got, got good fellowship with the Lord, well, shove it open a wee bit more. There's always more of the Lord that we can have in our lives. Let's keep pushing the door open because sin in our lives tends to be an automatic closer that gradually just keeps closing the door. We have to keep pushing it open to keep it open and to those who persevere they will rule with Jesus in his kingdom in some way in which we're not exactly sure what it means but he knows that where he is we will be and what he does we will have a share in and he says anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches the spirit says draw closer If you're far away, open the door and draw close. Let the Lord in. If you're already close, let's draw even closer. Let's not trust in ourselves. Let's not be confident in the things, in the ways God has blessed us. But let's be confident in the God who blesses and the God who gives us strength. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for stating it plainly that that we're not able to stand before you in our own right. Any confidence we have in ourselves is completely unfounded. We ought to stand simply in complete confidence in Jesus. And we thank you that you call us to do so. You give us the gift of righteousness, the gift of faith, the gift of the Spirit the working of the fruit of the Spirit within us. Lord, we thank you that you are our righteousness, you are our strength. Forgive us when we have become indifferent, even a little or even a lot. Lord, we turn back to you now and confess our sin and we ask that we will be able to to have that fellowship we ought to have with you. Lord, we, we, we will push the door open, but Lord, come in and help us to push it even further open and help us to enjoy fellowship with you 
as individuals as well as as a church, deeper fellowship with you. And we thank you that out of your love for us, you call us, you discipline us, because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.